Rahim. In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful, may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad. So inshallah today we're going to wrap up the the topic that we began a couple of sessions ago related to the the difference <coughs> that we find in human beings with the rest of creation. <clears throat> and this was the last of the topics that we wanted to address. Uh, not necessarily to refute, but to uh, kind of give a summary of where we are in terms of scientific investigation and discoveries uh, and whether or not we can use those to prove or disprove materialism. Because a lot of what we find today in the arguments of those who believe in materialism, they want to rely on science and um, you know, scientific discoveries, scientific research. <clears throat> so we decided to look at three areas that are very important and I think very influential for the majority of people when we talk about the topic of materialism and it's a very important topic with, rela with relation to belief in God and religion. If you know what's going on in this, under this general theme of materialism, you're usually going to be in control of the discussion. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to control the discussion at all and they're just going to keep throwing these arguments at you and you won't have anything to, to respond to. So the three areas that we thought would be good to investigate and to discuss quickly, the first one was the beginning of the universe. And the idea that is it possible, really the biggest and most difficult claim is there's a claim that the universe can come out of nothing. If that's true, then yeah, it may be problematic for someone to say we need God, we still need God, we still need... We're not saying that it disqualifies all of the arguments, but we're saying it may make it a lot more difficult because a lot of arguments are on the idea that we need something to begin creation, and creation as we know it in our world is the universe, the physical universe. Universe. So today there is a claim that keeps appearing here and there that it is possible for something to appear out of nothing, and therefore for the universe to exist from non-existence, from nothing. That's the claim, or at least that's how it's presented. But then we, when we dug a little bit deeper into it, and we brought one of the most famous books about this, and there's many others, there's a lot of articles and many books about this. Uh, so we read uh, Lawrence Krauss, passages from Lawrence Krauss's book, A Universe from Nothing, to show that the claim that it's from nothing is actually not, not very accurate. It's not really from nothing. So we're back to square one. We're still asking all those things that they need to put in place for their universe to, to emerge, we're asking where did those things come from? So the laws of nature that they need, the quantum fluctuation, gravity, inflation, all of that. Okay, so I'm not going to repeat that, the whole discussion. So the first theme, the first question was the beginning of the universe. The second one was the beginning of life. So we spent a couple of discussions, a couple of sessions talking about this idea that or the question, is it possible for life to emerge from non-life? 
And we said that today, this has become a, an entire field, uh, a little bit outside biology, a little bit outside, uh, you know, uh, those who study evolution. They study that as a separate topic because increasingly they're adding more and more fields into it. So now you have people who study astrophysics and who study geology and who study not only biology, but chemistry and physics and other areas. All of them have to come together to see can they recreate the conditions or at least identify the conditions for the emergence of the first bricks that became life. The first elements, the first ingredients, you know, those complex proteins that would become life afterwards. Okay, and we said this is called abiogenesis. And this entire field, we talked about it, we saw, we saw how difficult it is for them right now, how at a loss they are, that it's a very big problem in the natural sciences world to explain where the beginning of life came from or how it could have emerged. We talked a little bit about some of the statistics around that, the, basically the logical impossibility, and we gave some analogies. You know, we said if you know, a particle went, were to go back and forth in the entire universe as we know it, the observable universe, or if every single elementary particle was one chance, then we still would not even be close to having one of those particles be the one that is the beginning of life, right? Like in one in, and you remember the zeros that we had around that, and we said go back and, and study that, the possibility, the probability of life emerging or the first complex proteins required for life emerging on its own completely randomly is basically zero, logical zero. So we talked enough about that, so we're not going to repeat that. And then, so those that was the second one. So beginning of the universe, beginning of life, and the third one is beginning of humankind. And so we tried to combine two big topics in here. The first one is the human being by themselves, and then concentrating on one specific area of the human being, which is the mind. So when we looked at human beings... We didn't spend too much time on it because I'm trying not to get too far into the debate about the evolution theory. This requires a series of lectures on its own. And I don't mind if you guys are really interested in it, but I don't think the theory of evolution itself is a problem. Okay, the, It becomes a lot more of a, of a scientific discussion if we talk about the theory of evolution. Personally, my issues with the theory of evolution is not that it goes with or against belief in God. It depends. You can still, there are a lot of people, a lot of our scholars who believe in the theory of evolution and who believe in God and religion. Okay, I think there's, in the philosophy of the theory of evolution, there's a problem with God. Because the whole point of creating that theory is to show that things, all of this can happen without a supernatural intervention. That's the whole point. And that's why they created mutation and natural selection and random, uh, the randomness that is required. All of that is there so that we can say this can happen on its own through the laws of nature without any supernatural intervention. So you can't come and say, and all of this was put in place by God, unless you remove something from the theory. So it's no longer random. There's a purpose, there's a design. So it kind of contradicts, okay? Anyways, so let's put that aside, because as I said, the issue itself is not with the theory, whether the theory works or not. The theory is a theory, it's one of the best ways they currently have in the scientific world to explain how we got to where we got in the basically animal and a little bit the plant world. Even the plant world has huge issues for the theory of evolution, but that's another topic. 
when we come to human beings, we said that there are some issues related to the emergence of the first human beings. And when we say human beings right now, we're talking about the ones that have our genes. The ones that are basically us as far back as we can go in the past. So there are, they call them hominids. Okay, so there are varieties of primates that seem to be very close to us, but they're not us. There are genetic differences between us and them. So those, let's put them aside. Okay, let's say these are different species. But once we reach the ones that suddenly appear about 200,000 years ago, they have basically remained unchanged this entire time. So this evolution is not taking place with them. When they first appeared, we notice if we go back in their genes, their genes, there's a something, a change in their genes that happened. They think that there was a fusion of two genes together, for instance. These are complex changes that usually, based on the theory of evolution, should take a very long time to happen. I'm not going to say millions of years, but something like that, okay? So, a very long time. Thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years for these changes to appear. And they happened out of the blue, all done, complex changes, all at once. Very quickly, they just suddenly appear. And then, since then, there's no change. And they appear in a way that is very, very, we call it over-endowment. These people had a brain capacity that is basically the same as the one we have today. Okay, so if evolution is triggering this, if it's natural laws or nature itself, it pushes a species or a being to evolve, to adapt to its environment, there's nothing in that environment that will make that being, that creature, suddenly have to develop a brain that is capable of doing philosophy or complex abstract math or appreciating art or coming up with very complex notions of personhood and rights and responsibilities as we have today. That brain that they had and the brain we have today is the same. Nothing has really changed. And we read a number of passages to talk about that. And this is one of the biggest com complex issues that they have today with it. How do you explain the complexity and the power of that brain? Maybe we can explain it if it appeared suddenly, you know, 10,000 years ago. But if you go back 200,000 years ago, and you say it's the same brain with the same power and the same conceptual ability, what happened? What was that being that was right before that had to evolve into that? To have that kind of super thinking that we now were proud to say as human beings, this is our greatest achievement and our greatest tool. Okay? So this is from a genetic point of view. And then we continued with, if we look at the nature of the human being and the way they are, especially when we look at the way they think, the mind of the human being, we can't really find anything else in nature that does what it does. Everything else, when we look at the animal kingdom, when we look at the plant world, we see that there's kind of like a continuity. You can find something and you can find traces of it right before. And so this is why they were able to come up with a, a theory of evolution. They say, oh, well, then this one is a little bit more complex than that, and this one looks a little bit like this, and this one can do a little bit of that. Okay, so obviously they evolved one from the other. But when they come to the human mind and what it can do, there's a jump. And that's why we said, is it a difference in degree? Is it just 
a lot more of something, or is a difference in kind? Is it, there's a jump, there's something completely different here. And we gave a lot of examples, we're not going to go back to, you know, how human thinking, which we call notional thinking, human beings can think in abstract terms, notions, so I can sit here and think about a notion. I don't need to be triggered by my perception of the world. I'm not, it's not a stimulus. Okay, so if a dog is thinking about something, it may be able to think, or a dolphin may be able to think, but it's because I stimulate it to think. So it's reacting to a stimulus. It doesn't just sit there and think abstractly about something, like human beings do. We can sit there, and without any external stimulus, I may start thinking you know, about something like, you know, what is my responsibility? Should I be doing this, or is that too much? A human being thinks that way. An animal, so far as we know, an animal does not do that. Regardless of how smart they are, we don't see any trace of that in their thinking. The ability to think in this way, which we call this notional or conceptual thinking. Very different than perceptual, based on perception, thinking. <clears throat> so all of this brings us to the question, which the reason why we started this entire discussion is... Is the mind equal to the brain? Because if it is, then we can solve all of these by explaining how we got to the brain. So we explain how the brain evolved, and then we explain how the human mind, which is the human brain, is different. If we understand how the human, the human, uh, if the human brain, if we understand how it works, then we understood everything there is about a human being. But if we don't know that, if we can't show that, if we can't show that the mind is equal to the brain, that maybe there is something beyond this mass in our cranium called the brain, there's maybe something beyond it. And this is who we truly are, that thing. But that thing requires the brain. We need the brain as the tool to do things. These are two completely different versions of the world. So one version is the materialist version. The version that says there is nothing else but matter in the world. And there is nothing but material interactions. So what we are is our brains. And I, I brought you a book in our last session that, we, that was called We Are Our Brains. Okay, just to give you an example of that. So this is materialism. Just to give you a little bit of more of a terminology, sometimes they refer to that as monism. Why? Because they say there's two big theories. There's other ones, but just so that you know the terminology. One theory basically says there's only one type of substance, one type of reality, and that is matter. In one shape or another, which is either energy or matter, but it's one thing. Okay? That's monism. It means there's only one. Mono is one. Singular. There's only one type of substance, which is matter. Centuries ago, there were thinkers, when they thought about human beings and reality, they thought there is more than one type of substance. And that has remained until today. So those who think that there are two types of substance, they're called dualists. So there are monists who believe there is only one, and there are dualists who believe there's two. What are the two? Well, mind. No, energy is lumped together with mass, which is matter. Okay, all of that together is matter. And then there's the mind. 
So we've been referring to it as the mind, the mind, we can call it the spirit, the soul, whatever. They say this is a completely different type of substance. Something that you cannot reduce to something else. Okay? There's two things. One of them that you can reduce to its simplest, it's just matter. And the other one is the spirit or the mind. Okay? I'm not saying this is what it is, what is or was it, just so that you guys know the, the terminology. If you hear someone is a dualist, or they say, oh, Auntie, you're a dualist, that's what they mean. If, if you read it somewhere, you basically believe in two substances. You believe that reality is dual, it has two substances mind and matter. If you're a materialist, you're a monist. You only believe in matter. You're not a, you cannot be a dualist. Okay? But is a dualist like open to more than two things? Or no, it's just two things? Well, a strict dualist is only those two things. That's why I'm not saying that this is the truth. We don't know. Yeah. Okay, well, that would require a different discussion, a philosophical discussion that honestly is irrelevant to us. And all we need to say is, we need more than matter. But just to make sure, they mean the conscious or do they mean the soul when, they, when, they, when they're dualists? Our claim is that they're both the same. Okay, but no, I mean dualists. I'm not talking about us. I'm talking oh yeah, humma, yes. And you have a lot of like all the Christian thinkers. Uh, they're all dualists. Oh. So they created a system. Some of them very big philosophers like René Descartes. Mm -hmm. Okay, he was a dualist. He believed there are two or three substances. One substance is God. That's one type of entity. Another type of entity is the mind or the spirit. And one type of entity is the body. And everything that is material. That's it. There's nothing else. Okay? So, you know, and if you go in to, into the works of a lot of the, the big Christian philosophers, thinkers, that's how they built the world. But they become triplist. Yeah, but God is like, they keep it outside of the equation. We're talking about like our reality. They're dualists. Okay, so the question is, can we reduce, simplify a human being just to chemical interactions or is that not? Really, it comes down to that. So that we don't keep repeating the same arguments from different angles. What's the issue? So some of the issues we run into this They've actually been highlighted to us by some of the philosophers who believe in this. So if you read works by people like Nietzsche or Bertrand Russell or others, these are philosophers who spend their time defending, looking into the human being and how they live, they're supposed to live their life, and defending the idea of materialism. The only thing that exists in the world is matter. But what does this lead to? So today I'm, I was trying not to read anything from any books, but there's a lot of passages that we can read where basically they believe in a world, Bertrand Russell has, has passages where he says, you know, like all these things that we call, you know, faith and hope and love and ideas and beliefs and fear and everything that is deep within a human being, really, really, it's nothing more than random atomic interactions which makes them all completely meaningless. It's just atoms interacting together. There's another passage by a very famous you know, atheist, materialist, scientist, uh, Haldane. He also says the difference between like us and you know, uh, uh, anything else is like, there's no difference between me, let's say, and a champagne glass. You know, the interactions happening, the bubbles in a champagne glass, they're the same. 
So whatever is happening there and whatever is happening in my mind, there's no difference. And at the end of the day, he says, when we look at the interactions that are leading, and this is where it's starting to become problematic, okay? Because I'm saying all of this to finish this topic and begin the next one, inshallah, okay? We want to finish this today. If I say that all of this is happening through random atoms interacting with each other based on the laws of chemistry and physics, then there's no meaning to them. Right? They're just interactions. It's no different than, let's say, the bubbles in a glass. You look at them, there's no meaning. And so this is why Haldane, in, in his passage, he says, while the interactions happening in my brain may be accurate chemically, you know, obviously they're following the laws of chemistry, I don't know if they have any truth value. I don't know if they're true or not. All I know is that chemical reactions must be happening in the right way to generate whatever they're generating. Right? But is it actually a, an image of reality? I don't know. And I'll never know. And it doesn't matter because it, it's all without any meaning. And that's why they start creating this entire philosophical systems that, for instance, Russell, Bertrand Russell, he says, you know, it's built on despair. Or nihilism, which is basically the philosophy of nothingness. So there is no God and no religion and no values and anything goes and may the most powerful win. You know, do whatever you got to do. That's it. That's Nietzsche. So if you ever, you know, get into philosophy or you're forced to take some philosophy courses, they will teach you about Nietzsche. And sometimes uh, the funny part is they'll teach you about Nietzsche in classes of you know, moral thinking or ethics or moral philosophy. Yeah. And he is a nihilist. So basically he doesn't believe in any of that. But anyway, they, they teach you that. So, when we say there is no truth value, there's no meaning in those systems, it's because they are nothing more than chemical or physical interactions between atoms. Right? If we go back to summarize the, the main argument that we made, we have tried not to minimize the role of the brain. We're not doing that. We recognize that the brain is extremely important. We're not claiming that a human being can think properly without, let's say, having a brain. Or if you have an injury to your brain, case in point, if you have an injury to your brain, that it has absolutely nothing to do with, you know, anything, and you can just live based on a raw mind, right? A pure mind. We're not claiming that. And that's why we talked about an example that's maybe a little too abstract when we said, if someone knows all about how the pigmentation of a canvas is put together, how the colors come together and the substance of that pigmentation and is it oil-based or not and, and, and. It still doesn't mean that they know what the picture is going to look like at the end or what that image means, what it symbolizes to someone looking at it. Or if we take an example a lot easier, let's say I look at a book. One way for me to look at the book is to look at the ink that was used to print the pages and to look at the type of paper that was used and the type of cover that was used for that book, right? That's one way to look at the book. Another way to look at the book is 
I don't even look at that. I read the book and I concentrate on the information contained in the book. And I say, that book is about that. I don't look at the medium. I look at the content. Our brain is the medium. Our brain is the tool. But it's not the content. The mind is the content. There is something behind the brain that uses the brain as its tool. The information that we have contained in the book, for some reason, us human beings, we live in a material world. It can't come to us without a medium. So this, in this case, the medium was the book. And the book was the ink and the paper and the letters and the... Right? It takes form in this way. But all put together, once the ideas are in you, the information or the knowledge that you have is not the book. And you can't say that the knowledge you have is reduced to the ink and the paper. The ink and the paper carry that information. But they are not the information. Right? So that part has to be clear. If it's clear, then when you go back to a human being, you can say that there are media. There's a media or there's mediums. There's a substrate, as they say. There's something on which you put the information. There's something on which you put the content. That's the mind. That's you, who you really are. You said consciousness. Call it consciousness. That has to sit on something. In our case, it's sitting on a body. We're not just like souls floating around. We have a body, and the body does everything, including proper thinking. So for that to happen, you have to have a healthy brain so that your mind can actually do the thinking it needs to do. And if your mind decides to reach for something, then you have to have a healthy arm to be able to reach for it. But it's not the arm moving on its own. No one should come to the arm and say, wow, this arm just moves and let's study what the arm does. And the arm is not moving on its own. And if it moves on its own, there's an issue. The problem is they want to reduce us to the brain. The brain is not doing everything on its own. The brain is the tool interpreting, perceiving reality, and then controlling the body based on that. And then when we add our will, it does control the body based on that will. So if I decide to write, or I decide to sleep, or I decide to reach, then the brain will make the body do that for me. So if I have an issue with my brain, of course that's not going to happen. But it's not the brain deciding on its own whatever is happening in terms of chemical interactions on their own to move my hand. There's something that makes the brain do what it does. Okay? That, that part, inshallah, is important and just keep it in mind. And so I'm not going to go through all of the examples and reopen the debate that we started last week, but... Basically, we talked about a whole lot of types of activities. The point of those activities is what? Is to show specifically this point. That it's not the brain controlling its own activities and deciding by itself. There has to be something more that uses the brain. And so we talked about, let's say, near-death experiences. Where people, for instance, if you look at them, based on what we know from science, they're hooked to all the machines in the hospital, and based on everything we know in science, this person has died. They are brain dead. And then they say, they bring them back to life, you know, 
a certain amount of time later, and the person says, yeah, I witnessed this and I experienced that. Okay, so obviously there's something else going on beyond the brain dead, beyond the brain itself, in that person. That they can actually come back and say, I experienced this or I felt that. What experience? Your brain? Your brain is dead. Nothing was happening in your brain. There's no electrical activity in the brain. And really, a materialist can only rely on electrical activity. There's nothing else going on. And then we talked, one example, I'm not going to mention all the others. We talked about, let's say, the placebo effect. So what is the placebo effect? It's nothing more than a thought. A thought cannot possibly be something material. A thought does not have a location, let's say, in the brain. Right? It's something immaterial. But yet, we mentioned, I think, I don't know if we mentioned examples or not, but, you know, one example that was, this was in the New York Times. At some point, there was a study, it was published, that there were two groups of people, uh, there was a researcher who gave them wine. And he had them rate the, how good it tasted. So everybody's drinking the same wine. And he's making them drink two. And he's telling them one of the wines costs $5 a bottle. And the second one costs 45 And the result is that everybody who drank the 45 said it tastes a lot better. Because they have a preconceived notion that a $45 wine costs that tastes better. It costs more, it tastes better. Okay, it's a placebo effect. They're drinking the same thing. If it's only the brain, then the, the stimulus to the brain is exactly the same. The brain's interpretation of the reality should be the same of both, and it should come back and say, this thought that you have should have no impact on what the brain does with it. If it's only a material, a materialist impulse. If only... If, if the only thing it's working with is the taste, the taste is the same. So why is your thought changing what the brain does with the information it gets? Ah, there's maybe some, something that can override the brain. That is more powerful than the brain whether you realize it or not. And another study, for a lot of you I think this would be really cool, really interesting. There was a study for eight weeks done on a different groups of people for eight weeks with a control group and with placebo group and with a, another group, there were no performance enhancement drugs. But they were told that that's what they were taking. You were told basically you're taking an anabolic steroid for eight weeks. And they measured everyone's performance before and after. And they ran competitions at the end, running and jumping and lifting and for eight weeks on university students. And everybody who had the placebo, they all performed better. And they all built more muscle. And it's a placebo. They're taking this. It's fake. There's nothing in it. But they were told this is a performance enhancement drug. We want to test how well you're going to perform at the end. How much you're going to increase in your speed or your strength or, or, or. Okay, these are examples. There's so many more of them. And we said, like, basically their entire industries today built on only the placebo effect. They work on nothing else. They make millions, if not billions, based on the placebo effect. It's a well-known, documented, 
you know, uh, area in the scientific world, especially in the pharmaceutical world, very well known. How do you explain the placebo effect? And we read the, the testimonies of people who are considered authorities in that field, and they all say we have no clue how it works. And so long, I will guarantee you that so long as they say it's only matter, then they're not going to know how it works. There's something that's overriding your brain, and that's your thinking. And your thinking is not in your brain. Your brain is the tool that it uses. But if your belief is that this is what it's going to do to you, then that's what it's going to do to you. It basically tells, that belief tells the brain what to do with the body. So inshallah we keep that in mind when we talk about the benefits of faith and belief and all of that. Okay, we'll, we'll come back to that inshallah eventually. Okay, let's finish this. The... I think the, the main points I wanted to finish with is to link it now to the next topics, which is, this is a very big field that we didn't really talk about yet. It's, it's related to a lot of the things we mentioned. Um, it's called evolutionary psychology. So there is, you know, they study the human being biologically and they try to explain and predict how a human being is based on their genetics. The new field is they're trying to guess how a human being is going to <clears throat> conduct themselves, how they're going to behave as a human being based on their genetics. Because the reality is if there is nothing but your genetics, if there is nothing but matter, then I should be able to look at your genes and say exactly who you are. And if I'm good enough, and eventually they think that they will be good enough, I'm going to be able to predict in any given situation what you would do. I have access to all of your genetic code. It's just a matter of studying the genetic code enough to understand it. But what does this mean? This means that basically a human being doesn't have free will. Anything and everything you do is because of your genes. So there is no such thing as a free will you fall into something called genetic predisposition. Or genetic, let's take another, use another word, genetic predestination. Okay, You have no choice to do and not to do. You're, you're thinking, you're feeling that you can choose to get up or keep, stay down, to do and not to do, to eat, not to eat. It's an illusion. Your genes are deciding for you and your brain runs the show runs your entire body, and that's it. The rest is just an illusion. And we actually have people, very famous, writing book after book, all based on this. People like Daniel Dennett and Steven Pinker and others, they believe in this. Okay, They're writing book after book about what they call evolutionary psychology. So if tomorrow someone looks at a society and say, well, that person, of course they had no choice to rape because of their genes. You, they're not really responsible for what they did. They, there's a genetic predisposition in this person to do that, and that's it. So they're going to do based on what their genes dictate that they do, and the brain runs the show. What else is there? So this is my question to the materialist. What else is there if they, we agree with you that it's only the genes and it's only the brain? And we now know what the, that person's genes are and what they're capable of and where, where they want that person to go. 
And that's it. This should be the end result. And that person has absolutely no ability, no choice to do anything but what the genes dictate. Or not do anything. How not do? How would they not do? Yeah, or like, or not do anything that the genes tell them to do. So basically, like, if the genes tell them to rape this girl, that's it. That's it. There's no choice not to do it. Mm-hmm. They just do, and the brain just does. That's it. The so, inshallah, keep this in mind because the next topic, and this is the link that I'm saying, inshallah, for the next. The next topic is supposed to be about free will. So this is the alternative. This is the option. If you follow the materialist worldview, this is your only option. If you believe that there is nothing but matter, then you are stuck with matter, and you are stuck with the laws that govern matter, including your mind, including your ability to make choices. It's all material. The moment you say there is an I, where is that I? Is it beyond matter? Do you believe in consciousness and a mind? Ah, then maybe you're not a materialist. The funny part, the funny part in all of this, and let's conclude with that. The funny part in this is, inshallah, I'll get you the passage. And he talks a lot about this. There are people like Richard Dawkins. He says, after explaining all of this, after agreeing with all of this and believing in it, and he says there's nothing but matter and everything else superstition and he makes fun of religion and God and all the myth of religion. He says, if we are left to this, to our real true nature and the reality of the world, then we're just material beings and therefore we're all selfish because the genes, the point of a gene, that's why there's a book called The Selfish Gene, Okay, the point of a gene is only one thing. It's to self-replicate. Genes are the type of reality in the universe that their job, all they're trying to do, which is, you know, why they, they ended up becoming life and, and, and. Really, it's nothing but to replicate, to make copies of each other. Every gene, that's all it's trying to do. So for that, it needs to be selfish. It needs to preserve itself and to make itself into the type of entity that can better self-replicate than anything else. Than any other gene. Okay? So that people like Richard Dawkins, that's their entire theory. So he says if we're left to that, then we're all just going to become extremely selfish entities. We can't live together. And no one really wants that. So we have to teach ourselves to have lives that are counter, that are against this selfish gene idea and this selfishness that comes from our material reality. Okay. So the question is, why? Why is it that you, Richard Dawkins, why do you think that there is a right and wrong that there's something that makes you say it's not the right thing to be selfish. Maybe we don't need to be selfish. So what? What if we are selfish? What's making you say that there's something beyond that selfish? Do you recognize a value? Do you recognize a truth beyond matter? Beyond your genes and the reality of your genes? So basically he's saying there's only one motive, but then he's coming up with another motive. Like, how is that? How does that mean? So now the question is why? And where does it come from? 
What makes you say that this is the right thing to do? Is it because as we believe, as we claim, us people who believe in superstitions, that all human beings have been created with an instinctive, innate ability to recognize right and wrong that does not come from us, it's been put in us. There's a reason why we are the type of creature we are. This doesn't exist in the other creatures. I don't think lions are sitting together discussing, should we be selfish or should we be more altruistic and be ready to sacrifice for each other? Right? We're the only creatures who have that. So where does that come from? Where does our, and this is really, when you hear the word moral or morality, that's all it means. All morality means is your ability to understand that there is a right and a wrong. So how do you decide what is right and wrong? If you're a materialist, there is no right and wrong. That's it. The genes want to self-replicate. Let them self-replicate. Whatever they need to do, they will do. It's blind nature. You're basically like your idea that you're aware of yourself. That's all an illusion. Daniel Dennett says consciousness is an illusion. He's considered one of the four. They call them the, the, horsemen, the four horsemen of atheism. Okay? There the, there's the four, four horsemen that will bring Armageddon that, in the Bible. They say that there's four riders who will come, and each one of them, so one of them is disease, and one of them is war. There's four of them that will come, and when they come together, uh, Armageddon will happen. That's in the, the Bible, in the, in the Testament. Okay? So there are people who took that idea, and they say there are four authors today, four thinkers and authors, one of them died. One of the, uh, those four... They are, the ones, they are the ones that they call the four horsemen of atheism. Okay? They're taking atheism. They call it the new atheism. But a lot of what they say, there's nothing new in it, but fine. So he's one of them, Daniel Dennett. Richard Dawkins is the other, and Sam Harris is the other. Okay? So his eye, Daniel Dennett, he basically says consciousness is an illusion. That's his main idea. So you think like you're conscious. Reaction. That's it. Me being, like, sad for my mom. There's nothing. No. None of that. <laughs> Chemical reactions don't get sad. Yeah. So, like, me, like, raping a girl is just a chemical reaction. <laughs> and so, he will not say that. But we need to go there. Like, yeah. if you want to live, you're claiming that you live in a civilized society. <laughs> with laws. With So, how do you make all of that work? Do we just like try to dupe people and pretend that, or is there maybe a flaw in your thinking? And maybe there is a right and wrong. And maybe it's not all just chemical reactions that are completely random between atoms. Maybe there is a purpose. Maybe there is a design. Maybe we are supposed to behave in a certain way and not in another way. Which seems strangely that all human beings recognize no matter where you go. But you insist we, on rejecting. Why do we repent then, like, like even some even atheists go like I shouldn't have done that. Because people instinctively recognize a right and wrong. Yeah. And we talked a little bit about that, but we said this is one of the arguments. It has different versions. But one of the arguments for the existence of God is called the moral argument. And the moral argument can be different things. One of the things is where does our sense, our ability to recognize right and wrong, where does it come from? That proves that there's a God. That's the moral argument. And there are a lot of authors and thinkers who rely on that argument to prove the existence of God. 
They don't go for the necessary being. They don't go for the design. All of that, they find problems with it. They say, we're, we don't believe in God for all of that. But we believe in God because of the moral argument. Which we didn't really explain a lot, but we mentioned it a couple of times. Okay, and there's other versions of it. But that's a very big and very powerful idea. Especially if you keep in mind that there's no other creature that we know that has it. Yeah. Not in the natural world. That's the thing. There is no mass murderer lying or mass, mass savior lying. And do they recognize good and bad? Does any animal know that it's good and bad? That it's not like a trained stimulus? Because he's going to get a reward or a punishment. That's different. But to actually intrinsically know that is not a... You know, that's not right. That's wrong. That's injustice. Right? Yeah. Anyway, so with that, inshallah, we have, you know, the, finished our discussion about materialism, the three big topics that we wanted to talk about. The beginning of the universe, the beginning of life, and human beings, including their mind. So with that, inshallah, I think we are ready to go back to the series of topics that we were discussing in, in our theology or belief system presentation. So we were just about to, we had just finished the attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and we are now about to start the divine justice topic. So before we jump into that, we need to talk a little bit about do we have a free will as human beings or not? Is there a free will or not? So obviously we said where materialism is with that. So khalas, we're going to park that now and we're going to go back to what we believe. Okay? Rasulullah ala Sayyidina Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa tayyidina al-tahirin. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sallam.